0: Amen. Please be seated. Children, um, we're age four through third grade, can go to Children's Chapel with, uh, I think it's the Friesens. <coughs> and if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 3, where the text is printed on the next page of the bulletin for you. Um, Having enemies hurts, not just because of the um, obvious pain that conflict can cause, but because of the uh, the, the very existence of conflict is difficult for us. The, the fact that someone disagrees with us or opposes us or even hates us is uh, disturbing, to say the least, which doesn't quite feel right. Uh, enemies... Uh, don't just challenge our safety, they threaten our confidence. Uh, they f- threaten our confidence that our beliefs or our thoughts or our actions are right. And uh, they strain our resolve to stick to our beliefs a lot of times. And it seems especially true that the, the more um, dangerous the enemy, the greater the internal struggle uh, to hold fast to our convictions. So the threat level that our enemy poses can be measured um, based on a variety of factors. For example, the enemy's proximity, right? Whether they're on our doorstep. The enemy's um, strength, they might have a far-reaching power. Or the enemy's numbers, uh, the fact that you might have many enemies that surround you. The, the relationship of the enemy to us, uh, whether it's someone very close to us like a spouse or just some acquaintance that we don't have to see very often, um, but the higher the threat level, the greater the fear of pain, right? Uh, so the more likely we are to waver in our confrontation of the enemy. Um, and Psalm 3, uh, which is an individual lament, that's the category that it falls under in, in the Psalms, um, which is actually quite striking so early in the Psalms to find after the introduction of these psalms, immediately we move into a lament. Things aren't quite right. We need to express that in our, um, in our emotions and in our prayers. Uh, but Psalm 3, we find the potential despair that arises uh, very easily out of enmity, and we find reason uh, for steadfast confidence in the face of all threats. So let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll read Psalm 3. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit now to open the eyes of our hearts, to renew our minds with your word, so that we would be changed by it into the likeness of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for Him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and a lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me just say up front that um, as we went through that, if you're following along and reading it, um, Psalm 3 contains a few interesting features. It's the first psalm in the, the Psalter. Uh, with a title, which uh, may or may not be original to the text, it may be that uh, David wrote that title or it may be that it was added afterward um, uh, to provide a context for the psalm in this case uh, david 's flight from his son Absalom, which is found in second uh, Samuel chapters thirteen through nineteen kind of that 's the, the range of that story, and we 'll get into that a little bit later, but <clears throat> sometimes these um, Psalm titles help the reader understand uh, the context, how do you apply this text, right? And I think it helps us um, this morning. Psalm 3 is also the first psalm where we find this word, uh, silah, right? Silah, um, which is at the end of some of these these verses. The precise meaning of this word is um, uncertain. Most likely, it notes a change in musical accompaniment. Uh, Remember, the, the psalms were often used in public worship uh, so there's a very specific application for just a few of you. Um, music team, <laughs> if and when we sing this psalm in worship, uh, make sure that you observe something about it should change there. <laughs> uh, and there you go. That's about the easiest Bible application I've ever done. Um, and that's totally why I do this, just to see the that aha moment in your eyes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> right. So... According to the title, uh, this is a psalm of David when he fled uh, from his son Absalom. We find the backstory of that starting in, in 2 Samuel 13. One of David's sons, remember he had a few wives, uh, which, by the way, is never condoned in the scripture. Every time that uh, it's mentioned that uh, a man has more than one wife, it's to show uh, how terrible that is for the family, right? Uh, it's not the way it's supposed to be. A man is supposed to have one wife, And uh, a woman to have one husband so um, but it was the frequent practice of people in the the ancient near east to have multiple wives and um, one of David's sons by uh, one of his wives his name was Amnon had a thing for his half sister who was David's daughter by another wife and her name was Tamar and uh, Amnon premeditatively raped her and uh, shamed her which led, as you might imagine, to serious depression on her part. It says, uh, so Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house, who is a full brother of hers. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But then he did nothing. He did nothing to bring justice to the situation. So Absalom... Who is Tamar's full brother? Sheltered her, and it says he hated Amnon. And uh, two years later, uh, in front of all of their brothers, Absalom had Amnon killed at the dinner table, and then fled fled the scene. And after three years of uh, of exile, there he uh, he returned and he feigned some sort of reconciliation with his father David, but then he turned the whole kingdom against David and stole his father's throne. So David had to flee from his own son with whom he had a terribly broken relationship due at least partially to his own guilt over the the Amnon-Tamar issue for for his inaction there. Uh, David left Jerusalem in despair. An old man pursued by his grown son and his own army his own subjects pursuing him to death, unsure whether maybe he deserved the plight in which he found himself. And eventually, he and those who were loyal to him were holed up in a city. Uh, They were weary from travel through uh, the wilderness, and they were preparing to go out and fight Absalom and fight all of Israel, the Bible says, uh, in the forest of Ephraim. And that's the historical context in which we can understand this psalm, Psalm 3. In a sense, Psalm 3 is uh, generic. It could be sung to God by any of his people. <clears throat> but in a sense, David is the, uh, the representative singer of Psalm 3, showing God's people how to express the fear of their enemies, this inner turmoil that they feel because of this enmity. And more importantly, uh, turning to confidence in God. That's the, the ultimate point of the psalm. David cries, out to God, O Lord. Uh, remember when, when that word appears in uh, small caps in your English Bible, it's O Yahweh. He's using God's personal name, uh, his covenant name. Uh, o Yahweh, how many are my foes? All of Israel, led by his own son, were out to kill him. And they taunted him by saying of his soul, there's no salvation for him in God. Um, an example of this taunting Is found in 2 Samuel 16 where you've got, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Shimei maybe, um, of the house of Saul who was the previous king that David uh, displaced as king um, or replaced. Uh, And Shimei um, says that he threw stones at David and said as he cursed, get out, get out you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Uh, so these particular taunts, this, these particular accusations are actually untrue, right? Because we, we see in the Bible that um, several times David spared Saul's life uh, again and again, right? He, he had... Uh, Saul within arm's reach. He could have killed him and taken over the throne and he didn't, right? Uh, He realized that it would be a sin for him to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He spared Saul over and over again. He loved Saul's son, Jonathan, and he lamented when Saul and Jonathan and Saul's other sons were killed in battle. He lamented um, the death of Saul. And then, after he had uh, taken power, he sent men out and said, find anybody from the house of Saul and bring them here to me. And there was, a, there was one of Saul's sons, Mephibosheth, who was lame in his feet, right? He's this crippled son of David's old enemy. And David said, you're going to live in my house and eat at my table every day. And he cared for Saul's family that way, right? Um, nevertheless, these accusations that are being hurled at him... Uh, This is where the real torment comes, with enmity, right? Uh, Accusations like this are the stuff that sleepless nights are made of. Uh, David is certainly guilty, maybe not of what Shimei is accusing him of, but he is guilty of tolerating sin in his own life and in his uh, family, right? His dire situation uh, in his fleeing from his son Absalom and his own army that... uh, it could easily lead him to believe that God had abandoned him, right? that God is taking revenge on him for his sin. And this is the root of spiritual depression with which, the, uh, with which his enemies seek to plague him through their accusations, their taunts. But David fights spiritual depression with his faith in God. His enemies would have him despair of God's concern, of God's uh, love and favor toward him. But David sings that God is a shield covering him. God is his glory. He's the lifter of his head, the one who encourages him in the face of his troubles, right? Uh, the one who answers his calls for help, who protects him even when he's asleep, when he's at his most vulnerable. And um, and this knowledge of... Uh, this. Of God's uh, love, his steadfast love for him, is the only thing that actually enables him to rest in peace, to go to sleep in the first place. Therefore, uh, since God is able and willing to protect him, even when tens of thousands of people surround him seeking his life, he won't fear, the text says. Instead, he trusts that God will shame his enemies. And render them powerless. He'll, he'll strike them on the cheek and break their teeth. And he knows this deep in his soul because time and time again, God has not, not only assured David of his goodwill uh, through many promises, but he has worked to deliver and strengthen and give victory to David. And he, he did all this when David was a sinner, right? David was a sinner before when God made promises to him and when God helped him. He's always been a sinner. And so God's not going to start breaking his promises or turn away from David now. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, and Yahweh has promised it to David. No enemies, no matter how many or how powerful, can change that, which should be a blessing and a happy encouragement to God's people. So David sings Psalm 3 as a representative of God's people from a particular moment, from a particular experience in his life. Um, And it's pretty remote from us, right? How many of you are kings being pursued by your own armies? Um, Is there a better representative? One who more fully represents all of God's people. One who can sing this psalm to God better, with fuller meaning. One who can better lead God's people in singing this song for um, themselves Uh, let's turn to the gospel reading which we read earlier this morning Matthew 27 when they had crucified Jesus they divided his garments among them by casting lots then they sat down and kept watch over him there and over his head they put the charge against him which read this is Jesus the king of the Jews then two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus was surrounded by many enemies who taunted him, saying, almost verbatim to this psalm: there is no salvation for him in God. These were his own people, his own subjects turned against him. Even his best friends, in the end, abandoned him. Yet he had gone to that cross in supreme confidence, in supreme faith, that God, his own father, wanted him there to save his people. He went trusting that his father was able to protect his soul, that Yahweh would raise him, to glory, that God would lift his head, turning his mourning into gladness, turning his death into life. Jesus made himself completely vulnerable to his enemies. He allowed himself to be stripped naked and lifted up on a cross, knowing that God would eventually give him victory. Jesus is the ultimate singer of Psalm 3 as the vicarious representative of God's people. So, how does this help us? sing the psalm for ourselves? How are we led through our despair when we come into conflict with enemies into a confident faith in God? When we face opposition in life, do we sing Psalm 3 like David did? Do we sing Psalm 3 like Jesus or what? How do we use Psalm 3? There's a commentator, Derek Kidner, who says this. This is an evening psalm. So one to be sung before going to sleep. For the ordinary believer who can reflect that his troubles are nothing compared to David's. And David's expectation, nothing compared to his. David believed God pretty well considering what little he had to go on. Right? But we have Christ. We have the Son of God given for us as a pledge of Yahweh's love. If God has given his only son for us, he will surely deliver us from all of our foes. Uh, Now, you can't just take any threat from any enemy and say, because of Jesus, God will surely spare me from that. Um, You can't just say that gun-toting maniac can't shoot me because I've got Jesus. You can't say that that IRS agent can't make life miserable for me because of Jesus. You can't say that my spouse can't abandon me because of Jesus. Or that that mob that hates Christians can't hurt me because I've got Jesus. Uh, To be delivered from our foes doesn't necessarily mean enjoying perfect comfort, um, physical peace, or even survival in this life. Uh, Ultimately, there is a final enemy that Jesus will defeat, that when he's done it, will be delivered from every pain and sorrow. On the last day when Jesus defeats death itself, when heaven descends and the earth is renewed, then we'll finally be delivered body and soul, spiritually and physically. Every fear will be erased. Every doubt will be expelled. Every danger will be extinguished. But until that day, our deliverance looks like this. Whatever our enemies can do, they cannot threaten your salvation. Whatever they can do, they can't shake the foundation of your greatest hope. Whatever they can do, they cannot revoke the guarantee of your eternal joy. Let me ask you what you think. What's the worst that our enemies can try to do to us? if you think, kill us, you're wrong. The worst that they can try to do to us is cause us to despair of God's love for us. The worst that they can try to do is cause us to think that we're too sinful to be saved. The worst that they can try to do is cause us to believe that our circumstances prove that God has abandoned us. Enemies test our nerve. They test our faith. Maybe your enemy is an abusive family member. Maybe it's a friend who mocks you for your faith. Maybe it's an employee suing you for discrimination. How does that kind of thing affect your sleep at night? Maybe it's the devil himself who loves to point out your sins and your weaknesses. The greatest danger is not just of being killed it's of being stripped of our blessed happiness. The true danger is spiritual depression, doubting God's promises. The only real danger is of losing the assurance of our salvation. And uh, William Gurnall says, When a believer questions the power of God or his interest or participation in the power of God, his joy gusheth out as blood out of a broken vein. Blood is obviously a precious necessity for life. Uh, The joy of salvation is the spiritual lifeblood of the Christian, which is yours by faith alone. The simple existence of enmity, physical or spiritual, it's frightening because it can be easily mistaken as proof that you are just irredeemably in the wrong. That God himself is against you, that your sins are on your head. Those are the thoughts that enmity can conjure up in your heart. Jesus helps you to have the confident faith expressed in Psalm 3 first by saying, maybe to your surprise, you know what? The accusations against you, they may be true. God is angry with sinners, and you are a sinner, and you deserve to die for your sins under God's wrath. And then Jesus helps you by leaping up to die in your place, turning away God's anger forever. Forever. By his dying on the cross, he says, you have nothing to fear from your enemies. Because here, Yahweh vows with a promise that cannot be broken to be your shield, your glory, and the lifter of your head. We are vulnerable before our enemies, right? Their accusations are often uh, true, too often true. Maybe you are the abusive spouse. Maybe you do discriminate against people. Maybe you abuse your authority. Maybe you're completely arrogant. Right? Is that beyond the realm of possibility? Yet Christ's blood assures us that we will not be forgotten, but we will be protected by the almighty, all-seeing God forever. Forever. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then the taunt that tempts your soul to believe that there is no salvation for you in God is the most untrue deceit in the universe. Your enemies have nothing on you, nothing to hold over your head, because salvation belongs to Yahweh, not to your enemies. And Yahweh gives it freely to sinners. Even the most insanely terrifying enemies, the devil himself and death Itself, itself, are put to shame and are rendered powerless over us in Christ. It says in Colossians 2, Paul writes that, um, that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ at his cross. Right? It's, it's like he struck death straight in the face, knocked out all of his teeth, And he's got a full set of dentures that fall out every time that he tries to grab God's redeemed. No teeth. No power. All that the devil and death have to say to you amounts to this. God doesn't love you. And by his self-sacrifice, Jesus smacks those enemies in the face. He shatters their teeth. He takes away their painful bite. And he says forcefully, Yes, God does love you, and the devil and death cannot change that. Paul writes in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is good news for all of us. It's the kind of good news that makes you strong to face Your opponents uh, with peace. This is no abstraction, it's practical. If you know what it's like to have enemies who consume your thoughts, you know how worrisome and how stressful it is. And the gospel helps you to rest from your worries, it helps you sleep at night. Playing those tapes in your mind when you're laying in bed about all those painful conversations won't help you a bit. The gospel helps. The gospel helps you to take a break from your work one day a week. Stressing out, uh, trying to fix everything so that you're unassailable, so that no one can lodge complaints against you, it won't help you a bit. The gospel helps you. Only the gospel helps you to find real rest when you are surrounded by your enemies because everything you truly need is freely given to you at the cross, God has guaranteed to you his undying love and acceptance through the sacrifice of his son. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So put your trust in him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are encouraged by your gracious love, which is freely given to us at the cross. And we cast all of our hopes and cares on Jesus. We ask that you would take away the burdens of our souls from all those frightful accusations and taunts that we mull over in our minds, that our enemies throw at us, that even we just imagine them throwing at us. Would you erase all of our fears, all of our doubts that the enemies of our hearts and our souls might stir up Would you replace fear with confidence in you that salvation does indeed belong to you and you freely give it to people who are just like us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.